the reader of the scripture. And I'm reading from the Living Bible. So if the Son sets you free, you will indeed be free. And remember, it is a message to obey, not to listen to. So don't fool yourselves, for if a person just listens and doesn't obey, he is like a man looking at his face in a mirror. As soon as he walks away, he can't see himself anymore or remember what he looks like. But if anyone keeps looking steadily into God's law for free men, he will not only remember it, he will do what, he sa- what it says. And God will greatly bless him in what he does. Anyone who says he is a Christian but doesn't control his sharp tongue is just fooling himself, and his religion isn't worth much. The Christian who is pure and without fault from God, the Father's point of view, is the one who takes care of orphans and widows and who remains true to the Lord, not spoiled and dirty by the contacts of the world. I've been preparing this sermon over the last several weeks. I didn't really even think about it till I was standing at the back this morning about the timing of this would have been much better like a month ago, you know. <laughs> but the topic this morning is the law of liberty. I would like to reread a couple of things that uh, Kathy just read for us. I would like to read uh, just one verse of James 125 out of the New American Standard. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effective doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. And then I would like to read the whole scripture that she read again out of another paraphrase, the remedy Verse 22, James 1, 22, through the end of the chapter. Don't play games with yourselves by merely listening to God's prescription. Apply it and do what it says. Anyone who simply listens to God's prescription and doesn't apply it to their lives is like a person who looks at their face in a mirror, sees the dirt, and then walks away without washing it off and eventually forgets all about it. But those who examine themselves honestly in the light of God's law of love, the law of liberty, the law that heals and frees from fear and selfishness, and continues to do this on a daily basis, not ignoring what is learned, but applying it diligently, experience happiness, and they are healed, and they are transformed. 
But those who feel good about themselves, believing that they are well but have no control over what they say, are in denial of their own worsening condition. And their treatment program that they are in does not work. The treatment program that God our Father recognizes as effective is this. Actively loving others, caring for orphans and widows, and avoiding defiling self with the selfishness of this world. The phrase that you find in the title today, the law of liberty, is only found once in Scripture, and it's the one we just read today, James 1.25. But the principle is all through Scripture. It's just only phrased this way once. But it's talked many times about giving liberty to the oppressed and to the prisoner, freedom to the oppressed and the um, prisoner, and so on. This morning, before I get into the heart of the message that I'm going to present, I would like to read a paragraph out of The Great Controversy. It comes from page 532 in The Great Controversy. And this paragraph, the setting is from Genesis chapter 3, The Fall of Mankind. And actually, the beginning of this paragraph is quoting... Um, from Genesis chapter 3, 2 to 5 is how it begins. And then she says three or four sentences after there that I want to read to you. But I'll start out with the scripture. This is after the serpent has already began to tempt Eve. And then this is Eve's response to the serpent. It says, The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's the end of the scriptural uh, quote. And then Mrs. White's words are this. He declared, and he is the serpent here, The serpent declared that they would become like God, possessing greater wisdom than before, being capable of a higher state of existence. Eve yielded to the temptation, and through her influence, Adam was also led into sin. Now, in particular, it's this sentence that I want to concentrate on. It says, They accepted the words of the serpent. Might I insert the lies of the serpent? They accepted the words of the serpent that God did not mean what he said. They distrusted their creator and imagined that he was restricting their liberty and that they might, and that they might obtain great wisdom and exaltation by transgressing his law. I would like to suggest this morning that any times our liberties are taken from us, are infringed upon that it always does two things. It always causes distrust and a lessening of love, and it always incites rebellion. 
Let me read that sentence one more time. They accepted the words of the serpent, that God did not mean what he said, and they immediately distrusted their creator and imagined that he was restricting their liberty. In fact, he was not restricting their liberty, but even the thought, the imagination that he might be, still led them into rebellion. Can you see how crucial liberty is to the human species? For that matter, to all God's created universe. What I'm going to read next is not really a story. It's, it's an account of a Seventh-day Adventist psychologist talking about a young woman that he was working with. Uh, the name has been changed. It's not a real name, but it's written in the first person. He's writing this like he's, uh, you know, saying it as he works with the woman here. And the name he's given her here is Joni. Joni seems to be a frightened child, hurting, longing for comfort, for help, yet afraid to reach out, terrified lest she be hurt again. Her hands trembled nervously, and her dark eyes darted back and forth, clearly seeking to avoid meeting my gaze. The striking features of the 23-year-old woman showed traces of childlike innocence hidden behind a wall of pain and fear. She spoke softly and hesitantly, her voice quivering uneasily. As I escorted her down the hall to my office, I was thinking, what will she tell me? What could be troubling her so? Why does she seem so frightened, so insecure? Entering my office, she immediately broke down and began to sob. Tearfully, she describes how she had once been an outgoing, vibrant young woman who thought nothing of organizing her friends for a weekend outing or for giving a presentation at the school. With a slight smile, she told me of being president of her senior class. She remembered when she had been popular, energetic, fun-loving. But all that had changed when at age 19 she had married her high school sweetheart. During the first few months, their relationship seemed quite good. But not too long after the honeymoon, her husband had begun drinking. And gradually over the years, he had become increasingly demanding, critical, and controlling. If Joni wanted to go out with one of her friends, he would strictly forbade her. And if she attempted to resist his demands, he became hostile and threatening. Whenever he took the notion, he would order her no matter what she was doing and take her and abuse her sexually. If she tried to resist, he would beat her. Finally, she stopped resisting and instead submitted whenever he commanded. By the time Joni came to see me, she was depressed, confused, insecure, uncertain, fearful, unhappy, and utterly hopeless. The startling change in her marriage had completely demoralized her. She neither understood what had gone wrong, nor had any idea what to do about it. In this universe that we live in, God has a law ordained by himself called the law of liberty. 
And it's not just a simple rule. It's not a legislative enactment. And it's not an arbitrary command by a powerful potentate. Rather, it is a universal reality programmed into our DNA by the Creator Himself. I would like for a moment to kind of liken it to another universal law that we're all very familiar with, the law of gravity. Now, I know liberty is totally different than gravity, but go along with me for a moment here. With the law of gravity, when you think about it, you don't have to know about it for it to work. Nor do you have to believe in the law of gravity to feel its effects. In fact, you can even deny that it exists at all. But if you ride the elevator to the top of the Empire State Building and proclaim that there's no such thing as the law of gravity and then jump off, you will quickly find yourself under the jurisdiction of a law whose reality you deny. Violating the law of gravity has accompanying consequences, whether or not we anticipate them. And the law of liberty works in a very similar manner. Regardless of whether one believes in it, acknowledges it, or recognizes it, in violations of the law of liberty always result in damaging consequences and in very predictable ways. Let me illustrate it with a very short story here. Imagine a woman dating the man of her dreams. One day after they've known each other for several months, he takes her out to a very special restaurant. And after that, they go out to a beautiful garden with soft music playing. He gets down on his knees and he asks her to marry him. Realizing the importance of the decision, the young woman pauses for a moment to contemplate her answer. Her hesitancy makes him insecure. And he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a pistol and says, look, I have taken you out. I bought you flowers and gifts. I've spent my time and money on you. Now you had better marry me and you had better love me. Because if you don't, I will shoot you right now on the spot. What do you think would happen in the young woman's heart in that instance? Would she respond, oh, you're the strong man of my dreams? Of course not. I think we all recognize that such treatment would cause fear, Revulsion, disgust, ultimately resulting in rebellion. She would want to get away from him as soon as she could. This illustration reveals the first of two very predictable consequences that occur when one violates the law of liberty. It always destroys love and it incites rebellion. It happens whenever and in whatever, wherever, sorry, the circumstances our freedoms get violated. Let me give you a couple of other short illustrations. Consider a wife 
who wants to surprise her husband with his favorite meal, his favorite dish. And after spending several hours in the kitchen making her special lasagna that she knows that he loves, she puts it into the oven in a timely basis so it'll be ready by the time he gets home from work that night. But on the way home from work, she receives a call from her husband, and he announces, I have had a horrible day at work. I want some lasagna, so get yourself into the kitchen and make it. And it better be ready when I get home. And not even waiting for an answer, he hangs up on her. What type of reaction would you expect from that wife? Even though the lasagna is ready, do you think she might want to take it out of the oven and throw it out? Would her husband's violation of her freedom cause a rebellious reaction? Love perishes and rebellion springs up whenever freedom is violated. One more short example. Imagine being out at a restaurant with your spouse and a server comes up to you and asks, would you like anything to drink? And you reply, I'll have a soft drink. Give me a Sprite. And your husband speaks up immediately and he says, she can't have Sprite, give her milk. How would you respond? Would this violation of liberty increase your love or decrease it? Would you find yourself drawn closer to your spouse or pushed away? I admit these illustrations or examples are a little bit over the top, but they're on purpose to make a point. And I think you can all see it's the things that happen in your life. Sometimes there are much more subtle, smaller violations of liberty that we sometimes don't think about. But all violations of the law of liberty have the same result, the destruction of love and the inciting of rebellion. The only variable is in degree. Obviously, greater violations of liberty would have more devastating results. If we equate it once again to gravity, if you take a tumble off a four-inch curb, a sidewalk curb, you might twist an angle. But if you fall off a 40-foot building, you're probably going to die. So the law of gravity applies in each instance, the only variable being the degree of damage that will be seen. Now keep in mind the things that I've already said, but we're going to take a little bit of a turn in a different direction at this point. We're going to look at God. And I'd like to ask a question that's been a difficult question for many people, many Bible scholars through the years, in that why did God seem to use so much force and power in the Old Testament, but in some ways Jesus seems so different in the New Testament? And I'd like to suggest this morning that God has gone to great lengths 
to demonstrate to us through the scriptures that the violation of liberty does not restore love. You all, or pretty much, I think everybody here, all will remember the story of the Great Flood when God employed incredible use of power. But did it lead to loyalty and restored unity with humanity? What happened almost immediately after that? They built the Tower of Babel, didn't they? And why did they build the Tower of Babel? Because they didn't believe there was a God? That's hard to believe after the flood. Or because they didn't trust this God to never destroy the world again. Many other times that God used great power, we think of going ahead quite a few years after his people were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. He sent the ten plagues upon the Egyptians. The last one in particular was particularly hard to take. He used his power to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. And not long after that, God used his power to overwhelm the armies of Pharaoh in the sea. And not long after that, then God thundered from Sinai with grand displays of might. And the children of Israel were afraid. Again, let me ask, when God demonstrated his power in such ways, did it restore unity? Or did rebellion and worshiping a golden calf soon follow? Go down the path of history a little ways farther. Think of Mount Carmel, where Elijah called fire down from heaven. And the people fell on their faces and exclaimed, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But after that awesome display of power, did the people of Israel react perpetually, perpetual loyalty and faithfulness? Or did they respond with recurrent rebellion and idolatry? And if you have any doubts about the answer to that question... I just urge you to read the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Hosea and Micah and some of the other Old Testament prophets. But towards the end of the Old Testament, God says this through his prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 4.6 Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And just how does the spirit work? Through truth and love and freedom. It is by revealing truth and love and then by leaving us free to make our own conclusions that God gradually wins over our hearts. Think just briefly about the beginning of sin, Lucifer in heaven. When Lucifer rebelled, God did not employ his might to force the angel to conform. God did not use his power to punish and destroy. Instead, he avoided force because it is contrary to his methods and principles. 
In his great wisdom, in his omniscience, God realizes that using coercion only incites greater rebellion. It does not restore unity and harmony or love. Love absolutely requires freedom. Because if it doesn't give you freedom, let me tell you, it is not love. It still begs the question, though, if might and power don't accomplish God's goal of unity, then why did he employ so much of it in the Old Testament? God took great risk of being misunderstood by his use of it in the past. But during emergency situations, great love will take great risk. But we shouldn't mistake emergency measures as a violation of the law of liberty. Let me give you another brief illustration. Imagine that your family takes a trip out west to see the Grand Canyon. You enjoy the glorious majesty, the wonder of nature, the beauty of the Grand Canyon, but if you, as you're there watching from one of the edges of the canyon, your children start playing, and one of them throws a Frisbee, and one of your sons goes running after that Frisbee right towards the edge of the cliff. Would you shout to tell him to stop? Certainly. So you shout at him, but he's so caught up in the moment and what he's doing, he doesn't hear you. So you shout again, you shout even louder. But the wind is against you, and it's not getting there. The message isn't penetrating. As he approaches the edge of the cliff, do you scream at the very top of your lungs in an effort to save his life? Of course you do. Stop now. I said, stop this instant. And finally, your concern breaks through his consciousness. And he stops in time. But it is also greatly misunderstood. There are four hikers just down the canyon in ways that hear you and they think, what a cruel parent. I would never treat my child that way. Put yourself in the place of a teacher in an elementary school who has just brought the kids back from recess. And as she gets into the room, the children are still laughing and noisy and having a good old time, but a messenger runs into the classroom and slips you a note and tells you, that there is a gunman that has broken into the school. When you call for the attention of the children, they still don't hear you because they're making so much noise. Do you raise your voice? Do you yell, if necessary, to quiet them, restore them, try and direct them to safety? 
Do you risk this behavior clearly uncharacteristic of you, even if some of the students may not understand and may go home and tell their parents that the teacher yelled at them? One more short example. During World War II, we had many U.S. Navy troop ships that were out in the oceans. There were many that were sunk by torpedoes, but in in this particular story, there was a ship that was hit by a torpedo, began to take on a lot of water. As the water began to rise, uh, all the soldiers were down below decks, and when they finally figured out what was going on, panic ensued as they were trying to get up the one ladder to get above deck. As one soldier would try to climb a ladder, two or three others would rip him off so they could try and get on the ladder. As the next one did it, the same thing would happen. It was just utter mayhem. Finally, above deck, as the officers were shouting down below for them to listen and stop panic, there was time if they would one at a time come up and get above deck. But they couldn't hear. Their panic was tuning out everything else. And finally, one of the officers took a rifle and shot down below deck and ended up killing multiple soldiers. But it got their attention. The panic stopped, and all the other hundreds of soldiers were saved. Yes, God took great risk in using his might and power, not because it was his preference to do things that way, but because of the emergencies that he was dealing with. When we are out of control worshiping a golden calf and participating in an orgy at the foot of Sinai, divine thundering just might cause you to stop your destructive behavior long enough to listen. And that's the key, isn't it? Are we listening? The message to each of us is this. If you will listen to God and spend time with him, you will discover, even as Moses did, that there is no need to be afraid. When anything violates our freedom, it always leads to rebellion and the unavoidable destruction of love. It is impossible for love to exist in an atmosphere without freedom. The law of liberty is one of the very cornerstone principles of God's government. Scriptures clearly teach us that God is love and he necessarily then must respect the liberty and individuality of all of his intelligent beings. To do otherwise would go against his very character and it would destroy love and incite rebellion. 
the law of liberty was a truth that even the Apostle Paul didn't initially understand. Prior to his conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And what were his methods at that time when he was Saul of Tarsus? 